As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. We really liked what we heard. We started looking at the models for that and the cash flow numbers are double what an apartment building would be. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I want to introduce to you Ash Patel. He's a full-time commercial real estate investor. He's going to be doing the interview today and a lot of them moving forward. I'm still going to be doing interviews, just not as many. And he is going to ask tough questions while still building rapport. That way it's not awkward. He's a good friend of mine. Join me in welcoming Ash Patel. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Dan Odebashin. Dan is joining us from Albany, New York. He's a full-time real estate investor with 10 years of experience. His portfolio consists of small multi-units to large development projects One of Dan's projects consisted of a $15 million historic renovation of an old brewery to a 75-unit luxury apartment community. Dan, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. I started out in real estate as an investor, much like many others, investing in smaller two, three family properties quickly realized it was something that I wanted to pursue on a larger scale and also quickly realized that I couldn't manage all the properties by myself. So long story short, I basically scaled my personal investment portfolio along with a property management company. And we currently have uh, about 20 million in assets under management, consists of mostly multifamily residential, a few one-off commercial properties here and there. And that's the daily grind, along with some other bigger development and new construction projects I've that have come along over the years and also currently pursuing. Dan, we just went from zero to 100. <laughs> Hold on. Did you start out? Uh, it's the a- high-level overview. <laughs> Did you start out as a full-time real estate investor? More or less. Actually, interesting story. I was a finance accounting major in college at NYU Stern School of Business. I got a great education there, graduated in 2005, which was just about as good a time as any to be 
jumping into a finance job with bonuses they're handing out and the economy and state it was, and just decided to pursue an online poker career. I was making some decent money my senior year of college and didn't really feel like working 80, 100 hours a week as a junior analyst on Wall Street and did quite well with that for a solid three, four years and took some of that money and invested. That's how I got started in investing in real estate. That's where the money came from initially. So a wild story. So you're yeah. analyzing poker hands instead of yeah. balance sheets. Yeah. It was more or less the same thing as day trading. It's all math, high volume, a lot of hands and playing percentages. So when you got into real estate, I'm sure your goal was to go big. It wasn't just to get some passive income on the side. Correct. So like I said, dipped my toe, bought a couple of two families, and then realized that's for the birds, at least in my opinion, just with all the problems that can come up with having that many roofs and heating systems. And just from a global standpoint as to what I wanted to do, buying 10 units and 20 units made a lot more sense. But at that point, we're talking about, at least in our market here in Albany, we're talking about one to $2 million deals. So I didn't quite have the money to take those down at the time. So that's how I pretty much got into syndicating out deals with friends and family. And the management company was a natural fit as a, a, a huge advantage to recruiting investors because that's their first question is who's managing this operationally and you're looking at them and B, second stream of income. So kind of a win-win scenario in my opinion. Dan, was that a difficult sell to your friends and family? Because you're coming off of a poker career for three years and all of a sudden you want to take their money and invest in real estate. I'm a little skeptical. (laughs) I think at that point, people had seen how well I was doing. I come from a pretty conservative background. My father was a physician. My sister, who's the oldest, went into the same field. So needless to say, he wasn't too happy about the education that he had paid for from one of the best finance schools in the country going towards online poker. But I actually sat him down one day early on and showed him everything and explained it to him and his mind was blown. I basically said, I'm using the same skills that I just learned, just applying them in a different way. And I think he kind of looked at me in a different manner after that day, not as like a little kid that he had to watch out for anymore. So to answer your question, yeah, I think maybe a little bit of skepticism, but in general, even today, I think it's all about the way you present the investment to somebody and not scattered, not haphazard, not like I'm shooting at the hip or anything. I had a business plan and it was well written and well presented. Scenes from the movie Boiler Room just came to me. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. That you were having with your dad. I totally envisioned that. Oh, yeah. All right. So, yeah. what was your first syndication? What was that deal? What did it look like? The first one was a six unit. I actually just bought a personal residence and chatting up the owner across the street who was constantly over there painting the porch, fixing up the place, really took care of it. He had owned the property for, I think, 20 or 30 years, used it to put his children through college and told them, hey, when you're ready to sell, come to me and we'll make a deal. And he did just that thing and talked him into some pretty decent owner financing, got the rest of the money from a couple family members, and we were off to the races. Was was that set up as a joint venture or was that a true syndication with GPs and LPs? Great question. That one was actually more of a joint venture. So the other members were just partners on that deal. But that was really my first 
partnership of any sort in real estate. Up until then, I've been doing everything on my own and started managing properties for third parties on my own. So that kind of led to me realizing that this can be done in a bit more of a professional streamlined way, whereas the investor's risk is reduced a little bit and my share of sourcing the deals and all the upfront work is compensated for properly on the back end. Dan, follow-up question to that. If one of our best ever listeners has some real estate experience and they're looking to take on multiple partners on their next deal, would you recommend setting up a syndication or just doing the joint venture for the first deal if if they don't have hopes of continuing to go big in syndications? I may recommend a joint venture in that case for the sole reason of it's just a cleaner transaction. Everybody knows what everybody's getting. Everybody has a set percentage. You're true partners with the people that you're getting to invest in the project. So that would be my recommendation. Got it. Thank you. We'll get back to the show in just two minutes, but first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. One of the hardest tasks to balance while scaling your real estate investing business is accounting. Well, realestateaccounting.co takes care of the numbers for you so you can grow your business and revenue. REA helps property managers and investors save time and money by automating back office, financial, admin, and accounting. Starting is quick and seamless from accounts payable to reconciliations, taxes, and reporting. Go to realestateaccounting.co forward slash best ever to find out how REA clients save on average 30% by leveraging their accounting services versus hiring in-house. With CPAs on staff and being owner-operators themselves, REA knows the challenges of your growing real estate business. Try it risk-free at realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever, and remember to mention the Best Ever podcast sent you to receive up to $1,800 towards onboarding and services. That's realestateaccounting.co forward slash bestever. If you're not sure where to start investing or need help taking the next step, mentorship and coaching is one of the best ways to get going. Think Multifamily is a leading apartment acquisition and education company who provides true one-on-one coaching to help you invest for your family's future. Their servant leadership approach will guide you to successfully scale your real estate business or assist you to diversify your investments in multifamily. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how they help working professionals just like you transform their future through partnering and community. In fact, the majority of real estate investors who partner with Think Multifamily get involved in a general partnership within six months. Thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching highlights the partnerships, joint ventures, and resources all available through the coaching program. Go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash coaching to learn how to become a member and get involved. Okay, so now you've got your first syndication and you still have this big picture in your mind that you're chasing. So how do we get to the top? What's next? Well, I thought six units was a huge deal and it was going to move the needle a bit on scale. And I was like, I got to go bigger. So started seeking out 10, 15, and 20 unit deals. And then in back-to-back years, did a couple of 20 unit deals separate deals. And those had more of a syndication passive investor model to them. And we actually still hold those two deals to this day and they're doing great. So everybody's happy even through COVID. And how do you go about spreading the word of what you're doing and attracting new investors? Really just leveraging my network. Once I realized it was going to work with direct family members, extremely close friends who have inherent trust in me, Started branching out to more 
I don't want to say one-off people, but more acquaintances than anything. People, you consider them a warm lead, and you have some personal connection to, and they just have that first level of trust already, right? So it's not like you're going in there cold trying to get somebody to fork over some cash for a deal that they don't know you from Peter or Paul. So I think it's about getting out there, leveraging those acquaintance relationships, having lunch with people, explaining what you're doing and how it's going to benefit them, most importantly. That's what everybody wants to know is what's in it for me, right? And then from there, we've been doing more cold outreach through social media advertising, more so for specific asset classes, not to jump ahead too much. So we've been setting up Zoom calls and investor calls with people all over the country. Primarily, that just started this year. So I'm starting to get into the weeds on that a little bit. Let's dive into that. You said asset classes. What other classes have you gone into? Because you've taken down the 10, 15, 20 units. Yeah. What else is there? So you referenced the big construction project I did, did a couple other smaller ones. Those are also a multifamily. And then those were in the last two, three years. But the last year or two, especially in our market, it's just become extremely competitive for multifamily apartment buildings. So back when I was doing those first syndication deals we spoke about, we were picking up apartments at 50, 60,000 a unit. Anything that comes on the market right now is minimum 80, 90, 100. And we're talking about a couple of years. And the capital region, Albany area, isn't a high growth appreciation market. So it was almost like we got to not go back to the drawing board, but we're about to close on 20 units probably next week. It was a great deal we found off market. It's just becoming increasingly more difficult to source those deals. So It's almost just like a natural progression into diversification, and we were almost forced to do it. So one thing, it's been a hot asset class talked about a lot, are mobile home parks and self-storage units. We started looking at those and modeling those deals out, and they look great. So we're like, okay, let's go start prospecting for these types of deals. And it turns out we were a little late to the party when you see some of these big equity groups just scooping up mobile home parks. I saw one that got picked up in Valdez, Alaska a couple months ago, and it just seemed like it happened so quickly from our research. So it seemed like we were on the right track. And coincidentally, a few of these prospecting calls, we use a few different types of software to mine data, and it's not always 100% correct or effective, but it's effective enough. And a few of these prospecting calls turned into, oh, hey, we are not a mobile home park. Sorry. And I said, well, what are you? And they said, we're a seasonal RV park and campground. And we said, well, that's interesting. Tell us more about that. Tell me more. Uh, Yeah. So it turns out that it's a very similar model to mobile home parks, just with more of a seasonal and hospitality component, at least in the Northeast region where the weather doesn't really allow for year-round access and camping, so to speak. So we really liked what we heard. We started looking at the models for that, and the cash flow numbers are double what an apartment building would be. So we said, okay, we really need to start pursuing this. So built a real list of RV park campgrounds, started calling around, and we hit a few ones that looked pretty attractive. And currently we have one under contract, and I think we're sending an LOI out on one probably today or tomorrow that we looked at yesterday. And then a few other big ones in the hopper. What are the cap rates on a seasonal RV park? Great question. And that's what was really attractive to us about that asset class was we weren't seeing really anything under nine or 10, more so closer to 10. And the really good ones were 11, 12. So apartments we're looking at. 
seven, eight on a decent deal. So just the cash flow component alone made it super attractive to us because our model doesn't allow us to buy five and six caps with raising most of the capital that's going into the deal. There's got to be enough meat on the bone to pay out the investors and then also have something left over for ourselves. Dan, seasonal RV park versus year-round. What's the difference and which one's more attractive? We haven't really dove into modeling out year-round just quite yet. But I would assume, just from what I know about the seasonal, they act very similarly to mobile home parks. But the big difference is really the seasonal component makes it more like a vacation for people. So what you see is a lot of these RV parks have a very high percentage of seasonal renters. So people who just pay an upfront fee, typically we've been seeing 1500 to 3500 depending on the park and the location, for essentially a six-month period, early May till late September. And that's a great thing because they pay all the money up front and in the form of multiple deposits, starting with campers will pay their deposit for the next year in August of the previous year when they're gearing up to leave for the season. So not only are you getting advanced cash flow for the next year in the previous year, but you're getting all the money up front. So there's no chasing around tenants. There's no evictions. Everybody's happy campers, as we like to say. (laughs) And you're essentially closed in the winter. Yeah, a lot of the zoning and the way that these are taxed by municipalities, it's a much lower tax rate if you're only open six months a year. And also there's factors that play in for water testing and things of that nature. So it's much less stringent process if you're only a seasonal property. So we could deep dive into that industry, but I'm dying to hear about your brewery turned into luxury apartments. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I had taken on a pretty large management portfolio. I think it was up to about 200, 250 units. That was one investor group. Multiple buildings, but all concentrated in one of Albany's best residential neighborhoods for downtown living. And the group had taken down a 90-unit apartment building that coincidentally was also an old brewery. And these units had extremely small studio apartments. I think it was 78 studios and 12 one bedrooms and the studios averaged probably three or 400 square feet. There was some 200 square foot studios, but extremely desirable housing because of its location. You can walk to all of the state capitol buildings and a lot of the hospitals and medical school and law schools big close by. So we fixed up most of the apartments and we were attracting the young professional crowd, millennial crowd, the students who graduated from college or graduated from their three-bedroom apartment and sharing a refrigerator that just wanted their own space for an affordable price. So the opportunity came about, to be honest with you, I don't even remember how it came about because we're just talking to brokers and people in the industry every day, but it got floated across our desk and it was an old 60,000 square foot. It was the stable of the old brewery, and then two garage-type structures that were used for bottling and storage historically. And then the property was then, for the last 50, 60 years in between that, 
first an oil distribution company and a propane, and then currently it was a propane distribution company. So they would drive their trucks in and out of the garages, and they had their office in the big old stable, which was three stories, and it was just not a great fit for them as a company to have 12 propane trucks driving through a nice residential neighborhood and upsetting neighbors in the wee hours of the morning. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Mark your calendars for the Best Ever Conference February 24th through 26th back in person at the Gaylord Rockies Convention Center. Join the experienced community and phenomenal speakers for a weekend of learning the best commercial real estate strategies, building relationships, and quite frankly, having a lot of fun. As a bonus, once you purchase your ticket, you are put into a mini mastermind group to start making connections with other commercial real estate investors immediately. Get the lowest prices right now at besteverconference.com. That's besteverconference.com. You know, none of this sounds like luxury apartments, right? To me, <laughs> it's going to be an environmental issue because there's oil trucks in and out of there. I'm dying to know what your mindset was and how you transition that into luxury apartments. So the first factor was the history of the building and it was eligible for historic tax credits. That was a given. The second factor was, is the city going to be on our side? Is the neighborhood going to be on our side? Because those are big hurdles if you don't have support of the municipality and more importantly, the people who live around it. And to take an industrial site like that out of a great residential neighborhood was a pretty easy sell. So third was the environmental. We started researching New York State has a brownfield program, which would give us additional credits, but requires quite a bit of environmental testing. So we started doing said environmental testing in the main garage areas and really all over the site. And this and is after you purchased the building? No, this is when we were in contract. Got it. So okay. we negotiated a pretty long due diligence period. The owner had been in and out of contract on this a couple times. So I think he- Can't imagine why. <laughs> right, right. So they were still operating their entire business out of these buildings. So he was just waiting for the point in time when he could say, okay- time to find myself another property. So on the back end of the deal, in the back of his head, he's thinking, well, I'm going to need some time too, because I need to move this whole business somewhere. So we negotiated a nice due diligence period so we could get the historic tax credit set up and all the environmental testing done and apply for this Brownfield program. We're going to get all these extra credits. So did about, I believe it was like 50 or $75,000 in environmental testing. And found absolutely nothing. So that's a win. Yeah. The only thing we found was a gigantic void in one of the floors of the garage when they were drilling. One of the drill bits just dropped and they stuck the tape measure down there 14 feet. And we said, well, what the heck is this? And we hired a confined space expert to jackhammer out a hole. And then we went down with oxygen tanks and all types of equipment and it turns out that after talking to the Albany historian a little bit and reviewing some old insurance maps where they clearly labeled everything as to what the use was, because that's how they used to know it was all handwritten and they have all these on file that it said cold storage and these ceilings are perfectly vaulted. We get down this cave like structure and these ceilings are perfectly vaulted, clearly built that way. And we go, yep, that's is where they stored the beer to keep it cold because there was no refrigeration in 1870. So pretty interesting story on that front. Turns out the site was completely clean, which didn't kill the deal or anything because the Brownfield credits are really there to support the financial need for the cleanup. 
So there would be no additional cost for cleanup. So we marched on there and the equity raising for that project was pretty difficult because as I referenced before, we were just buying active apartment buildings and it was easy for people to wrap their head around buying something that's cash flowing from day one. But you factor in all these historic tax credits and all that nonsense. People are just like, "Uh, can we just do some more of these great apartment deals? So it was a little difficult to raise the funds, but we got it done, raised almost 2 million bucks and was a great project. Hold on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) One, did you have to fill the hole, the void? No, no because it was, it was completely structurally sound. Okay. So how do you pitch an investor on turning an old industrial building into luxury apartments? Do you had plans drawn up? You had pro formas done, the whole nine, or was it just pitching them on the dream? Oh, no, it was pretty expansive pro forma. The historic tax credits make the project pretty interesting because essentially what they do is fund the equity for the project. But you receive that equity when you complete construction and get your certificates of occupancy for the units. So essentially what you have to do between the time you close construction financing and the time you receive that historic tax credit equity money is bridge the gap. So really we were able to repay all the investor money back within, I believe it was 24 months between the construction financing closing and the tax credit equity funding. What percentage of the project did the tax credits cover? As far as the equity? Yes. It covered the full equity slug, which was about 25%. Okay. And then we got the other 75% bank financing. And where does that project stand today? Fully occupied, fully stabilized. Um, And a year ago, we flipped out of the construction financing into a nice agency loan, permanent financing at a 3.4% interest rate for 15 or 20 years and got a little cash out on that refinance as well. Dan, my guess is you're looking for another crazy project. You guessed the, wrong. <laughs> the, 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 the RV parks and the multifamilies isn't going to excite you like this one will. So what's next? What's the next crazy project? Well, the events I just described lasted about five years. So you're in recovery mode. More or less with a few fun things in between. But for me, the historic projects are pretty satisfying in a sense of it's not ground up construction. And A, it's extremely challenging, which I don't know. I like challenges. I gave up pretty nice salary when I was a young kid to risk it all on online poker. So A, I like challenges. B, it's extremely fulfilling to restore an old building. And I certainly didn't understand that until I took this project on. So definitely hungry for more. We looked at a smaller one last week, very similar project, and actually looking at another one today. It's funny, a few just kind of came up out of, I don't want to say out of nowhere, but it's just funny. One kind of finishes and then the next one's come along. Dan, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Think big, scale from day one. Which you did. Dan, are you ready for the lightning round? Sure. Dan, what's the best ever book you recently read? That'd probably have to be Hunter Thompson's Raising Capital for Real Estate. It's a good model. kind of breaks things down in a simple way for capital raising. What was your biggest takeaway from that book? Just the process. You may think you have it all figured out and you know a lot of people with money, but that doesn't mean they're going to give it to you to invest. So just the process that you have to lay out to raise capital. It's like a whole nother business model. 
aside from your day-to-day real estate activity. And Dan, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I do donate money to a lot of different local organizations, but the best way I like to give back is definitely donating time with local organizations. I think it's really important to be actively engaged in the communities that you're owning and acquiring properties in, especially in smaller cities like Albany. You need business leaders to step up on the community level. And I think real estate industry knowledge and skill sets are kind of naturally translate into that. Dan, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Email is great. Dan at newscotlanddevelopment.com. Our website is newscotlanddev.com, D-E-V. And our Instagram is at New Scotland Capital. Dan, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing this amazing journey of graduating from the Stern School of Business, going into online poker, having that boiler room conversation with your dad, and starting out with a pretty traditional real estate portfolio, but knowing the whole time you wanted to go big, and then just finding these alternative asset classes that bring in great returns. So thank you for sharing all of that today and have a best ever day. Thanks, Ash.